Our reading today is from Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth and Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger, because there was no room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they'd seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about the child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they'd heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Thanks, Alison. Why don't we pray as we just heard God's word read. Lord God, this morning as we see uh, your son's entry into this world, we ask that by your spirit we'd see it from your view. We'd see how amazing this is, how extraordinary this is. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Every parent thinks their children are special, right? There's something just special. Some think their child is exceptional, out of this world. Those parents you usually find on the sideline at the soccer game, screaming at the umpire, asking the umpire to get with the reality. Their son or daughter didn't do anything wrong, right? We all know someone who's tried to live out their hopes and their dreams through their children. Uh, you might have been one of the many children whose parents looked to you to fulfill their dreams, to live out their hopes, to succeed where they couldn't. But I want to say that throughout history, every set of parents that's done this has been totally mistaken, unhealthily focused, except one. What we've seen today is the only set of parents who had the right to think their son was out of this world, because he was. 
and the only son through whom your hopes and dreams can actually be lived out. It's a baby who'd be crowned king and named Jesus. But as we start this passage, it's actually the glory of another king this passage begins with. If you're following in your outline, we're at the glory of Caesar, point one. This is what it says in chapter 2, verse 1 on the screen. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. See, Luke opens up this chapter of the letter, grounding us firmly in a place and time in history. It's written, remember, Luke tells us in chapter 1, to give you certainty about Jesus. Luke, the doctor, has done a careful investigation of the eyewitness accounts. He's gone round, he's interviewed, he's asked, he's gathered them all together And he places these events under the kingship of Caesar Augustus. The purpose of the census was to count people, right? To count how big you were, how vast your empire was, and to count how many people that would worship you as king when they paid their taxes. That's why you had to register, was so that the the, the empire would know how many there were, they would know how much they could get. So Luke begins this chapter with the glory of a human king, counting all his subjects and saying, pay me. This king was self-proclaiming his wonder over pretty much the whole known world. It's a picture of Caesar and his kind of greatness. But what this king doesn't understand is that he's just a mere pawn in the hand of God. As the camera pans back and shows us what's really going on, while Caesar gathers the Roman world to be counted to glorify himself, the creator of the universe uses Caesar's pride to make absolutely certain that God's plans would be fulfilled. God laid it in the heart of this pagan emperor, Caesar Augustus, for tax purposes and for his own glory's sake, to decree a census, to move a family of nobodies exactly where God wanted them. Have a look at this. 500 years earlier, God spoke through the words of a prophet named Micah. Have a look. It's on the screen. Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Friends, don't miss this sign. That, that was written 500 years before Jesus came. Don't miss the power and control of the creator of the universe. That while the seeming ruler of the world was glorifying himself, the true ruler moved heaven and earth through the pride of a Roman emperor to make his word come true. Just compare the two, the seeming grandeur of a king to the humility of a baby. God is turning this world upside down. He's showing us something amazing. And the question for us is, have you seen it? Have you seen it? Have you seen the plan of the creator of the universe as it points to Jesus? Have you got the extraordinary significance of a baby called Jesus? But while the human king of the world showed off his grandeur, the true king of the world became human in the humility of a baby. That's point two, if you're following along. Uh, Have a look at verse six. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. 
And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him snugly in cloth, laid him in a feeding trough, because there was no room for him at the lodging place. Do you see the irony here? In the most insignificant town, through an insignificant family, in a shed out the back in the dish of a donkey, lay the creator of the universe. The creator of the universe. The one who was wrapped in glory and created all things is now wrapped in cloth, lying in a manger. You know, it got me thinking, if this is true, why would he do it? Why would he do it? Why would he create the world knowing that this is what would happen? Why would he become part of his creation? A baby, the king of the universe, a baby? I'll tell you one thing. God's got a different view of the world than I do. The idea that greatness is in being served, it's not true. The idea that power and strength and numbers will subdue the world, it's wrong. The news of a baby born in a feeding trough looks weak, small, insignificant, laughable, right? And as we tell others about Jesus, we look just as insignificant, small, unimpressive, laughable, as the message we speak. But be assured, this humble and weak message is God's power to save the world. It is God's power to save the world. So when you're tempted to think that Christianity is just kind of weak and unimpressive, or the church, or Jesus, I want to challenge us to take a step back And look at what's going on at this moment. The creator of the universe has come to save the world. And I want to take it one step further. If you're a Christian and you're constantly trying to look powerful and look strong and pretend you got it all together to kind of be triumphalistic and say, yes, how awesome am I? Like I am. (laughs) I find myself doing so often. Maybe we need to take another look at the humility of Jesus. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 2. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now that's impressive. That's impressive. That he would do that for us? Now, I'm not saying Christians should just roll on their back and kind of stick their legs in the air like some cowering dog. That's that's not the idea. But there's not a hint of pride in what Jesus did, is there? Not a hint. That's something that I need to work on. The humility of Jesus. Well, Larry King... It's not really a humble man, but he's a famous American talk show host. I think there's a photo of him up on the screen. He was once asked, if you could interview anyone in the world, who would it be? You know what he said? 
Jesus Christ. And then they asked Larry, if you could ask Jesus one question, what would that be? And Larry said, and I quote verbatim, and the quote's on the screen as well, I'd like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. The answer to that question would define history for me. And I think for once, Larry's right. If Jesus was indeed born to a virgin, it would at very least point to a world that was kind of unbound by sheer naturalism, by just by, by kind of that bigger things could happen. But more than that, coupled with the other things spoken of Jesus, it would mean that God actually became human. It mean that Joseph wasn't his dad, and there's this possibility that maybe he is who the Bible says he is. And what we need to be very clear about here is that God became human. We're at point three, the humanity of God. And there are a few views that I kind of want to quickly go through and and clear up for you, different views that people have of Jesus. Uh, The first one is, did a person become God? Right? Did did a person, a man, just become God? The answer is no. The first lie this world was ever told was exactly this, that a person could become like God. In Genesis 3, 5, the serpent said to Eve, In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. There it is, lie number one, that a person could become like God. That's what we've been trying to do ever since though, isn't it? Become like God. Determine what is right and wrong. Make ourselves the center of the universe. And when you look at the kind of religions around the world, that's exactly what some of them are saying. Mormonism teaches that you can become a god. Uh, Hinduism and many Eastern religions all say you can become godlike and divine. New Age spirituality, the kind of the stuff you hear Oprah Winfrey talk about. Um, it's called pantheism or panentheism, if you want to know the kind of fancy words. Pantheism says that everything's God. And panentheism says that God is in everything. So kind of like, you know, when you look at a tree, there's some part of the divine in the tree and there's some part of the divine in me. I am godlike. Now, not just in the image of God, but there's something a little bit divine about me. But the Bible makes a different claim. A person cannot become God. It's impossible. God is. He always has been. He always will be. You can't become God. He made everything by very definition of of, of who He is. He made the world. He is the first mover, the first one, the first first. Jesus didn't become God. Second question. Did Jesus come into existence at His birth? So this is the idea that God the Son didn't exist. It was just the Father and the Spirit maybe, or maybe just, just God in the Father's person. So Jehovah's Witnesses will say that Jesus is not eternally God. That Jesus wasn't God from the beginning. The early church, though, was pretty clear on this. The conclusion they came to uh, from Scripture was that Jesus was eternal. Let me show you a quote from the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. It says, And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, the essence of the Father. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. Being of one substance with the Father. 
What these guys in the early church were saying is that Jesus is eternal. That means he had no beginning. What does John say at the start of John's gospel? John 1.1 on the screen. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. It's echoing Genesis 1. The first day of creation, what it's saying is that before creation, Jesus was there with the Father as the eternal God. He's always existed. There was no time when he was not. None. And when John says in verse 14 that the Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us, this moment wasn't the creation of Jesus, but Jesus entering humanity in human history as a man. Jesus didn't come into his existence at his birth. Here's what happened. The second member of the Trinity who had existed forever, God the Son, entered into human history as the man Jesus Christ. That's what happened at his birth. The Son of God became the man Jesus Christ. Well, then there's another view that says Jesus ceased to be God when he became a man. So in becoming a man, he gave up his, his godness, right? Um, but he didn't. Jesus repeatedly says that he's God by his actions, by his claims to forgive sin, to do things that only God alone can do. One of the reasons that they put Jesus to death was this, and here's the quote, from, not from Jesus, from others. John 10, 33, on the screen. We're not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So Jesus Christ is not God minus, he's God plus. He's spiritual, eternal God, plus human flesh, grounded in human history. That's, that's who he is. So then people ask, well, is he God or man? Like, which one is it? Some Christians, kind of on one side of the spectrum, on the kind of more liberal end, they want to emphasize the, the manliness of Jesus, the humanity. They say he was a good teacher. You know, he's, he's a good leader. He helped the poor. He looked after the widow and the orphan. He was a really good guy, kind of like Gandhi or Mother Teresa, with an amazing life example. Is he God? No. Did he live without sin? I don't think so. Did he die on a cross as a substitute for our sins? No. Did he resurrect from the death? Don't think so. He's just a really great guy. One of the greatest guys that's ever lived. They kind of hold out his humanity at the expense of his divinity. Then you've got guys on the other side of the equation who kind of want to hold his divinity at the expense of his humanity. They say um, that they're kind of like super fundamentals, right? They, they say that he wasn't really tempted. How could God be tempted? He knew everything. He didn't really suffer. He just acted like it because he's God. He didn't really cry at Lazarus's death because he knew what was going to happen anyway. He's kind of like the ancient version of Clark Kent, right? He looks like a humble Galilean carpenter on the outside, but underneath is a blue leotard and red undies and a kind of cape flapping in the wind. He's the man of steel underneath and nothing affects him. He wasn't really tempted like we are. He doesn't really understand us because he's God and we want to hold that so strongly that we'll say that, well, he, he can't feel that. He can't have died. God can't die. But both those views are wrong. They don't match up with Scripture and they don't match up with the claims of history either. 
And you don't just need balance. A bit of both. You know? Jesus is both man and God. 100%. You can't point out the God bits. Yep, there's the blue leotard and red undies. That's the God bit. Oh, and there's his hammer with it. You can't kind of pick them. He's both 100% fully God, fully man. In the Council of Chalcedon in 481, they debated this heavily. <laughs> they got together, all the kind of key players, the theologians, the Bible teachers, and they formulated and articulated what we call the Chalcedonian definition. Um, they came up with this idea of what they call, and it's a big word, but I'll explain it, hypostatic union. Um, hypostasis means the substance of, of the sameness. They're saying that the substance of Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. It's not like two things kind of meshed in together where you can point each part. He's totally and utterly and fully 100% God, 100% man. That Jesus is one person with these two natures, fully God, fully man. We believe that. Catholics believe that. Christians believe that. Protestants believe that. Orthodox Christians believe that. And so Jesus is not God or man. He's the God become man. The unique, one and only, true God and true man. And that means there is a man, human flesh, ruling the world right now. Jesus didn't change into some other kind of form. Jesus is, is human. There is a human on the throne waiting to come back and rule this world. The future of this world isn't some spiritual kind of angel flying around, pretend kind of see-through body, I don't know what angels are like, I've never seen one type thing. It's actually like us, flesh and blood, but lasts forever. And what that means is, Jesus is like us. He knows what it's like to be tempted, to be hurt, to experience pain, and anger, and frustration. He's fully human. He's like us. And yet, He's different. Say, Jesus never sinned. Jesus never sinned. He never turned His back on His Father. He lived as the true human should have, trusting God in everything. Well, the scene shifts in Luke chapter 2 to a bunch of shepherds, kind of nobodies in the Roman world, just hanging out, looking after some sheep. I don't know what else you do when you're a shepherd. You stand in the field, it gets a bit lonely, I guess, at some point. But these shepherds then get a glimpse of God's view of the world, God's view of these events, and they see the incomparable glory of Jesus. In verse 8, the shepherds are standing there when this angel appears. There's lots of angels in the start of Luke. Lots of messages from God. That's what angel means, remember, just messenger. Um, and the angel delivers his message. Literally, the word there is the, the Greek word euangelion. Now, I hate just saying Greek words all the time. Some people just say them like, oh, I know Greek. That's excellent. I try and point them out when they're helpful. It's where we get the word evangelical from. And what it means is news, momentous news. We're called Auckland Evangelical Church because we're a church that's about this news, this evangel, this gospel, this message. And the angel delivers this momentous news in the face of the glory-seeking Caesar counting his people. 
God turns up the lights and there's this angel. Lots and lots and lots of angels. Have a look at 2 verse 13. Suddenly, there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. Can you imagine that? When I was 16, um, I went on a trip around Australia with some exchange students. And we went up the middle of Australia through Ayers Rock and kind of in places where really there weren't many people. If you know much of Australia, it's really, really big and the centre's got hardly anyone in it, right? So, because it's desert and there's nothing to see much. But we were there this night and we were camping and um, there was literally not a light for hundreds and hundreds of kilometres. No, no kind of street lamps, nothing. No city, just in the middle of nowhere. And I woke up kind of early morning, about dusk, just before the sun rose, to one of the most amazing sights that I had ever seen. The night sky was just lit up with stars from horizon to horizon. Just this blanket of kind of little piercing lights. It was amazing. It sent shivers down my spine. I think this is the closest image I could find to what it looked like. It's in the same area. You can see Ayers Rock and uh, the Olgas there. But the sky, I mean, we didn't see the Milky Way that clearly, but the sky was just lit with lights. It just sent shivers down my spine. Now imagine that scene, but instead of seeing light reflected from the sun, you saw light for the sun, the Son of God. And what covered the sky wasn't some distant rocks, but people. Living and glowing messengers from God, lining up the sky like an immeasurable army. That's what hosts mean, an army, lined up in their battalions as far as the eye can see. The warmth from the light, the brightness, the glory. Then comes the sound. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to all people he favors. Can you imagine being there? If the shepherds were terrified at one angel, this is going to like scare the pants off them. How do you think they felt at the sight of God's army standing there singing praises for something that had just happened? Glory to God in the highest. What a sight. What a moment. The lights are not just twinkling lights, but messengers from God, people. Why? Because this day is the most important day in history. Have a listen to what the angel said in verse 10. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, a Savior who is Christ the Lord was born for you in the city of David. The message that came directly from God is news for you. For these shepherds, the the waiting's over. Today, today, not tomorrow, not in six months. Ever since God said to Satan that he would raise up a descendant of Eve who would crush Satan's head, we've been waiting for a deliverer. Ever since God said to Abraham in Genesis 12 that from your seed would come one who would bless the world, we've been waiting. 
Ever since God said to David that a son of yours, a descendant, would come on the throne. He said that a thousand years earlier, we have been waiting for this son. Ever since God spoke to Micah 500 years earlier, promising in 5.2, this child would come from Bethlehem. This moment has been waiting. All creation has been waiting. Today, says the angel, today, a saviour has been born. In our world of codependent relationships, where we have this incessant drive for significance that we seek in chasing after a career, in, in social status, in the pursuit of money, in lottery wins, the idealism of politics. We, we hope for something or someone to come through and rip us out of where we are and just make things right. Everyone is looking for a saviour. We're looking for something that will pull us from the sickness we're in, the tiredness we feel, the pain we so often experience. Well, in this election year, I'm glad that it's Jesus who rules the universe, not politicians. Because we need a saviour as much in the 21st century as then. On that day, God came in person. God arrived so we would know him and not miss him. Have you seen God's glory revealed? Do you get it? Brighter than the brightest star is the claim of history. Louder than the loudest thunder. Larger than the largest enemy. The baby that looks like a nobody, like nothing, who's laughed at, who's mocked, who's relegated to a back shed, who's pinned to a cross and dies, who to the world around us is at best just a nice moral guy, brought on an event that outshone the sun, that filled the sky with multitude upon multitude of armies, singing praises to God for him. This is his message. Here is my glory, Jesus. Here is peace with the world, with God, Jesus. Here is my favor, Jesus, if you're looking for life, I'm going to say it's here in Jesus. If you're looking for peace, to end the war, you know that you need forgiveness, that you haven't been perfect. But Jesus has, and he offers it to us. As I read this part of Scripture, this careful account compiled throughout history, It hits me that Jesus is extraordinary. Have you seen Jesus? Have you seen him? The amazingness that lit up that light sky wasn't the light. It wasn't the armies. It was words. Simple, plain, clear words. Today, a saviour is born for you. For me? For you. For you sitting here today. That is extraordinary. That Jesus had in mind you 
whether you hate him or love him, whether you want nothing to do with him, you've ignored him or you've tried to serve him all your life, whether you're a wretched person or someone who's tried to be good in every little way they could, Jesus died for you and you need him. I'm amazed that the creator of the universe became man for a self-absorbed, self-focused, arrogant person like me. Deserving death, judgment and hell, because I've said I don't want God at the center of my life. For me, that God became a man. For you, that God became a man. A saviour was born. When my greatest need is filled, when I understand that Jesus has paid the price, what more could I want? What pursuit of life could be more important? What career is worthy of diverting my attention? What relationship could be more important, more significant? What possession could be more satisfying? What in this life could possibly be taken from me that would warrant taking my eyes off Jesus even for one second? For in Him, life is given. A Savior is born. Nothing. Don't you think it's time to quit living for short-lived pleasure? To quit pretending that you can run life without God? Or with God in just the passenger seat? Don't you think it's time to fall on your knees before the glory of the creator of the universe and say, take my life. Save me. Thank you. To give him all your dreams, all your hopes, all your aspirations. Well, in verse 19, we see two responses to this news. Have a look. It's on the screen. But Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they'd heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. I don't think there's a necessarily contradictory responses. Mary, she's just overwhelmed. It's like it dawns on her that the Savior, the Rescuer, the Hero, the Deliverer, the Dragon Slayer, the Kingdom Giver is here in her presence. It's her Son, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. God's here. He's with us and He's come to save us. And she ponders these things. She mulls over them. For some of us today, we need to be a little more like Mary. We need to actually think, did this actually happen? Is this actually true? Does it line up with history, with the other accounts that are there? Is there a better explanation for why our date is 2014 AD in the year of our Lord? Because it's my prayer today that this news might dawn on you. That you would see Jesus as the one you need to run to, who is offering you life. Don't take the gamble anymore. Come and look at least. Come to Explaining Christianity. Ask someone you know, what is this Jesus stuff you're on about? 
and the shepherds, <laughs> when you've seen the glory of the king of the universe, how could you not run and tell the world? How could you not run and tell everyone that you possibly know that Jesus is here? God has come today. Let's pray. Father God, we're in awe of what you have done for us. We're in awe of how amazing you are, that you would send your son to die so that we might live. Father, we ask that today for those of us who have not yet seen you for who you are, that you might help us to understand, to seek, to find the Jesus who came through history. For those of us, Lord, who want to put Jesus our King, we pray that you would take us, that you'd help us to trust you, and that you would help us to understand more and more how amazing you are. And for those of us, Lord, who do trust in Jesus, who have accepted who he is and what he's done, help us to be mesmerized like a bunch of shepherds that day as they saw the heavens open and the glorious King revealed that you would love us so much that you would send your Son. We ask that that might change the way we live, the way we speak, the things we focus on, the things that excite us, that we might see more and more and more people in this city, in our street, in our family, amongst our friends. Trust in the news that you have shown us. We pray this, Lord, in your Son's name.